For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Welcome back to Series 3. How are you enjoying it? This week, we have a treat for you in the form of fashion revolutionary Ursula de Castro. I'm lucky to be able to call Ursula a dear friend. She is one of the warmest, most generous, most knowledgeable people working in sustainable fashion today, hands down. You probably know her as the co-founder with Carrie Summers of the Fashion Revolution Movement. But did you know that she's also the queen of upcycling? That in the 1990s, after crocheting around the holes in a much-loved old jumper that she couldn't bear to part with, even though it was literally falling apart... She founded the fashion label From Somewhere. Her designs used only discarded, unloved, unwanted materials and turned them into the opposite. Treasured, loved, wanted and highly covetable. From Somewhere was stocked in stores like Brown's in London and Lane Crawford in Hong Kong. Ursula and her man Filippo, who is also her business partner and is another rad individual, did collaborations with the likes of Topshop, Jigsaw and Tesco. Later, they ran Aesthetica, which was London Fashion Week's hub for sustainable fashion and showcased the work of emerging designers in the space. These days, Ursula teaches at Central St. Martins, inspiring the next generation. She is an in-demand international speaker on ethical fashion and is the creative director of Fashion Revolution. She's passionate about making, mending and loving clothes and, of course, about upcycling but also about treating workers with dignity, about transparency in the fashion industry and about fashion justice. I kind of made that up. Is that a phrase? Let's make it one. I love the idea of fashion justice. It's a good title for a book. Maybe I should write one. Anyway, actually, I'm writing a new book. It's not about that, though. It's about the future of fashion. Watch this space. Anyway, if you haven't already fallen in love with Fashion Revolution, please join us. Everyone is welcome. It's a global movement of curious fashion changemakers. You can read the story of how Ursula and Carrie built it in my book about activism, Rise and Resist, How to Change the World. You can listen to the podcast from last series with Fashion Revolution's head of policy, another absolute treasure of a human, Sarah Ditty. Hey, Sarah. And you can buy the latest Fashion Revolution zine, which is put together by yet another genius woman, Tamsin Blanchard. All proceeds from the zine go to Fashion Revolution, which is a not-for-profit organisation, and we'll share a link for that. But most importantly, to use the Fashion Revolution tagline, you can be curious, find out, do something. Fashion Revolution Week is coming up in April, so what will you do to take part 
There are loads of ideas on the website and on social media. You can find them at The Mothership, which is fashionrevolution.org. And check out Fashion Revolution in your own country on social media. Like their Facebook pages, follow them on Insta and Twitter. You can find me on both of those. Of course, I remain in 2019 an Insta addict. I'm at Mrs. Press. But I've got so much amazing sustainable goodness happening this year. So please do come along for the ride. Talking of genius women and community action, do you know how I came to be able to make this third series of the podcast? I crowdfunded it. Perhaps you helped. If so, thank you. Thank you to everyone who contributed. And a particular thank you to those who coughed up a little bit more to become a citizen producer. This week, I'd like to shout out to some of those brilliant women, Amanda Butterworth, Felicity Lockery, Phoebe Bogus, Nicola Monk, Noelle Frick, and also a couple of lovely sustainable designers, Dominique Healy, who makes absolutely gorgeous stuff out of Melbourne, Emma Bowd, who upcycles totes into what she calls deed bags, and they're gorgeous, and slow fashionista Brooke de Cruz. And I'll actually share some links to those three in the show notes. Thank you. Ursula. Glau. The undisputed queen of upcycling, <laughs> co-founder of Fashion Revolution, all-round excellent person, perhaps the most excellent person in sustainability. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> We're recording this in Hong Kong. In Describe my bedroom. our view. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's one of these, not three quarters of the way, but quite three quarters-ish of the way. There's the harbour. There are these amazing, I love, I love the view in Hong Kong. It's so patterny. So these skyscrapers, I mean, I, I don't know why people don't design them into shirts. You know, to me, they look like an alternative shirting material, all these squares. Your eye is very keen. I mean, you look at the world in a different way to the way that I look in the world, for example, partly because you're a designer. But earlier we talked about that synesthesia thing. Yes, I see everything in colour. It's something I discovered maybe four months ago, but uh, I had no idea it existed. But I do see the world slightly oddly in the sense I always get lost. I'm not consequential. I can't do bullet points like one, two, three. I discovered that synesthesia is this thing whereby if you if you think of a letter, you think of it in colour. If you think of a piece of music, you think of it in colour. My whole life has been defined by the colours I see. And I recognize streets on around, you know, what color they make me feel. So it's, it's a weird one. But it's, I, it, as I said, I've only known for a few months. The reason why it was brought up this morning is that we're here in Hong Kong to judge the finals of the Redress Award, which is a sustainable emerging design award. Fantastic. And one of the finalists was explaining her vision and she mentioned it and said mm. she had it. Yeah. I would imagine that that way of seeing the world must make design brighter and sparklier. What do you think? Not just design. It sort of makes everything brighter and sparklier, except, of course, it does create difficulties as well when you're doing things like spreadsheets or, mm. you know, when you're being very serious, at least in my case, mm. you know, I've, I inhabit this space in a creative way, but it's a very serious space and I talk about serious things. So sometimes this seeing everything in colour might potentially... I don't know, either make me look a little bit frivolous or... All the best people can't read spreadsheets. I can't read a map if you tell me how to go somewhere. <laughs> oh, I can't read a map no either. Chance. Again, I can read a map by colour. <laughs> oh, look, I have to go towards the blue. <laughs> <laughs> 
I talked about the Redress Design Award. You've been judging since the beginning. Can yep. you tell us what the award is? So the award really is an upcycling award. Um, looks at the phenomenon of waste in the fashion industry. It was very definitely one of the first organisations to take it seriously, particularly here, these neck of the woods, where there's an awful lot of waste and an awful lot of production, an awful lot of surplus. Christina Dean started it after her previous incarnation which was the eco chic catwalk that she used to do i think it was in geneva at the time and um i've been taking part ever since i've helped christina when she started out i still to a certain extent i i wouldn't call it consulting really because it is a family so i i give advice as i would to other people i love and admire and it's a huge part of my life actually i'm here once a year but then i keep a strong relationship with most of the designers of the alumni, some more than others. And it's, it is really something I enjoy doing beyond description, and which is why I continue being involved. In 2015, the winner was Kevin Germanier. Yeah. I only just discovered his work recently. Mm. It's very interesting. He uses upcycled dead stock crystals. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what makes him an exciting designer. So Kevin, whom I've been mentoring ever since, even though he was the winner, normally I mentor the runner-up, but we remained very close. Um, he was also at Central St. Martins when he did the award here. He was in his second year, so I had the opportunity to keep working with him when he was in his internship year and then when he was in his third year. He's the man for right now when it comes to upcycling because he's incredibly committed and a really lovely, lovely person, but also someone that understands how, you know, really we need to break barriers when it comes to upcycling. So his aesthetic is very precise, very neat, very exciting and very luxury. I was going to say I'm very glamorous because sometimes those connotations historically have been less than that when we use that word upcycling. Yes, it's a long story. Um, I think that there's been a huge connotation overall that sustainable fashion cannot be glamorous, which I would um, dispute um, historically every step of the way. We have the opposite. You know, we have the grandest ever moment where upcycling reigned supreme, and that was punk, and that was surely not glamorous, and yet it was 100% upcycling. So we just have to see it, you know, the way that it falls. But there's been a lot of talk of sustainability not being sexy, and um, Kevin makes it Mm. look sexy so in terms of that aesthetic being referenced he does it better than anybody else I want to get much more further into your story and why I called you the undisputed queen of upcycling (laughs) but just to stick on students for a moment you're a visiting fellow at Central St Martins and you work with students there in this realm tell us about the work that you do there well it's difficult. I talk a lot. I talk a lot. I talk a lot. But I guess I develop very strong individual relationships with some students and not all of them. So upcycling, sustainability, being interested in this is not by all means universal. And I would rather have long conversations and intimate relationships, intimate in a design sort of way, with those people that really have the genuine understanding, the love and the wish to go further. Mm. That's important to me. I don't just want to be in there and, you know, talk a little bit about sustainability and then everybody leaving, you know, exactly. Um, Go back to your old ways. 
yeah, I'd rather concentrate to those ones that really feel it. Um, also because I believe that if you genuinely are interested, that's when your most original work will develop. You know, it is it is very limiting in many ways, working sustainably. And so it does require a huge amount of originality and uniqueness in order to do it your way. And it's within that originality and uniqueness, more often than not, that the best solutions are found. We often talk about the beauty of constraint in this conversation and the mm. idea that when you put parameters around something and you can't go beyond them, then sometimes that's where the kind of magic and sparkle comes. Totally. I mean, I couldn't agree more than that. I think in a way the 80s and 90s, you know, all we've seen is this, you know, you could design anything and make it out of any plastic. And I mean, you know, the, the example I always bring is suddenly there was a spurt of people designing these loo cleaners, you know, like a... What? Cactus loo cleaner or, you know, just plastic Oh, actual with. loo cleaners. Actual. Oh, but we could have a novelty one. That's oh, what I mean. You know, it's like, what like else? Anything you can imagine, uh, we can make it. Anything you can imagine, and we can design and make it. It's made of plastic and why would you want it? You know, it's... You and buy it for fun and then you throw it away. Exactly. That to me is... The opposite of what design should be. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, design should be about finding solutions. And for so many years, we've been concentrating on design in order to create problems because obviously we've got all this. Pla- I mean, you know, how many loo cleaners, designers, or cactus you're going to need, and um, <laughs> and so <None>. exactly <laughs> that's that's where we're at. So I love constrictions. I'm aware that they don't suit everyone, but for me. Knowing that there are parameters, knowing that there is um, somehow something that needs to be respected, some rigor is important as a design process. So we, I talk a lot about that rigor. We use that word rigor this morning and I like it because it's not a common word and I think perhaps it's been a word that's fallen out of parlance or common parlance because we don't live in that sort of time. Mm. No one wants to be rigorous. People want to be of the moment. Yeah. Quick. Instinctive. I believe in rigor. I mean, I know it sounds often very, very harsh, but to me, it also speaks of dignity. You know, there is dignity in really choosing what is right. There is dignity in being rigorous about the choices that you make. And in design, it works very well because often it's just one thing that works and not everything else. So although I won't... You know, I leave to actual designers, stroke philosophers, the less is more or the more is less. But in my personal experience, some brilliant things have been achieved by making mistakes and equally brilliant things have been achieved by keeping things simpler. I wanted to talk about dignity, but I'm actually going to come back to that later when we get into fashion revolution. But just to respond to what you said then... You talked about mistakes and sometimes they can breed fabulosity. Yeah. But also not just mistakes, but ruination or destruction or, and I'm just segueing not very well to my favorite story about you, which is crocheting around the holes in an old jumper. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, that was it. Yeah. That's how my whole, that's how my whole thing started. You know, it was, um, it was a jumper. It was a really special jumper and it was a special evening. And that was the only jumper that I could wear. And that's also laziness though, because I'm not very good at sewing or wasn't. And I just thought I'm not going to patch it. And I had, I'm very good at crochet. And so I crocheted around the holes. There were many and the stains. And lo and behold, I had the most 
beautiful jumpers to wear. Jumper. But from something that was potentially going to be thrown away by someone else, Dead. you made something new yeah. with its old heart still intact. Yeah, completely, with more of a heart. And that, to me, it is emotional when I think about it. It is also chemical, if you think about it, because I'm holding this jumper, which is dying. I'm holding the thread in my hand. There is a story between that thread that comes from my imaginations, my experimentation, and turns this whole into the story of what it is, because really I didn't want to obliterate the whole. You know, the story of the whole the was whole. important, exactly, and make it better. I strengthened that whole by crocheting around it. So I, I glorified it. <laughs> Today in the design competition, there was one entrant who'd used old socks in order yes. to make this very, very clever patchworked skirt. And you said, I just want to darn more of it. Yeah. <laughs> like the mending becomes yeah. like something to be proud of. Yes, mending is something to be proud of. One, because we come from 30 years in which any unpolished, any human mistake is considered dirty. You know, we've been glossified to the point that we find these processes dirty. To me, there is nothing dirty about something mended. There is everything celebratory and exciting. And, and somebody um, actually sent us a postcard at Fashion Revolution, which said um, mending is a revolutionary act. Mending is a scar, you know, mending is mending a scar. If we are proud of our life, proud of our scars, then mending is the physicalization of that, the externalization of that. I know this has got nothing to do with fashion, but before we press record, we were talking about the pressures of being on the public stage and being on recorded and videoed and on the telly. And I was saying, God, it's horrible being old and worrying about your neck. And we both did that thing, which I think all women do, even though you would think we'd be above it. Mm -hmm. But actually, our culture doesn't allow us to celebrate the lived in no. across not just clothing, but just all imperfections and the whole Instagram thing. You've got to look face-tuned and Kardashian'd. And that's become a cultural norm. Yes, it has. It's a very sad one, too. Um, in general, we don't really celebrate imperfections. You know, we don't like imperfections. And it's a tough one. I mean, I have four children, each and every one of them brilliant and unique in their own way. And, you know, none of them is perfect supermodels, super this, super well, no that. No one's perfect unless they've been airbrushed. Exactly. <laughs> but it's teaching them that ultimately perfection is overrated and that you seldom fall in love with perfection in fact if anything you fall in love with imperfections those are the things that you remember bringing that back to design you mentioned that you were feeling or seeing a wave a new wave of younger designers who were really being overt about the upcycled origins of the pieces that they're using yeah that's why I said that Kevin is the designer for the moment. I mean, Kevin will have a brilliant career and his aesthetic will continue and so on. But there is an even newer school of younger upcyclists who are using upcycling as a political messaging. And therefore, in order to be used that way, they need to look upcycled. They like need to punk. use. Exactly. They need to look the ways that they are. And I celebrate that aesthetic as well. I mean, you know, it, it's somebody else did it long before these guys. I mean, you know, if we look at the original Margiela pieces, the Margiela pieces with, the, again, the socks, you know, that, that went a long way to look what it actually was. Um, for me, that's equally important. And I celebrate that equally. I mean, you know, upcycling is for me, still an important conversation, not 
one that we're having very much because it doesn't sit very well with the panorama right now. You know, we're all somehow waiting for circularity, this closed loop systems to save us. And I'm sure they will. But nevertheless, in the meantime, we are producing 150 billion garments of clothing per year. So frankly, I'm a little impatient mm. that there are other ways of exploring ways to be more efficient with our resources and our surplus. Upcycling also is a bit of a slowdown when it comes to the production of it. People still don't imagine it upscalable. I would dispute that, but that's a very, very long conversation. Because it's less convenient. It's completely less convenient. It's completely the way that we less live. convenient. But so you don't just roll out a brand new roll of fabric and cut it out and chuck out exactly. the excess. Exactly. You're actually talking exactly. about even sometimes unpicking a garment and then reusing those yes. pieces to cut new pieces from but it could provide skills you know how amazing if garment workers were actually you know taught how to unpick and design to disassemble in order to reassemble again so we're also looking at creating further jobs what if all factories had a creative waste engineer who was actually preoccupied with those matters and looking at surplus before it becomes waste but yes upcycling i feel is a weapon for this generation not just because it responds to an aesthetic that seems to be liked but also because it visualizes the fact that we are treating our resources mindlessly and inefficiently and we ought to be reminded of that well, because brings, we have a problem it brings the political back into fashion and yeah. i think that when you're solely concerned with surface and speed and convenience yeah. the political falls away absolutely but speed and convenience has created an industry which is fantastically fantastically inefficient and in that inefficiency there is also an economic inefficiency that we're not looking at i mean when the burberry story broke about Burberry burning their stock. 38 million US dollars. No, worth. 50 million US dollars. Million pounds, what, yeah, exactly. I've never done more press than in those two weeks. I never saw a story ceasing to be interesting. And obviously the reason is clear, you know, consumers are livid. There was outrage. Outrage, should, quite rightly. But all brands do it. Well, that's what I was about to say, there was outrage, but I felt that the outrage was slightly misplaced because people were not aware of the context, which is not that we shouldn't be outraged across the board, but the pointing the finger at Burberry context was interesting to me because this is everywhere in the yeah, industry. Yeah, no, I, I tell you, I've done about 23 press intervention in that and every single one of them I made it exactly clear that everybody does it. So there should be a little bit more understanding about that and I, I'm pretty sure that the message will go through. We'll share a link to some of the pieces for which Ursula was interviewed, one from ID, one from CNN, but this was such a buzzy topic, wasn't it? People buzzy were topic. really cross. And I couldn't wait for this story to happen because it's been fashion's best kept dirty secret for so long well, so long rewind when i wrote wardrobe crisis which i was writing that book in 2014 15 probably 15 when i interviewed you and you told me about your experience in a mill in sri lanka yeah and i wonder if you might like to recap that here for people who haven't read the book read the book but <laughs> um to me i'd never heard of this and i was just it, that's shocking it is that shocking. So I mean, millions, I mean, millions and millions of pieces go, you know, that was in Sri Lanka, but I mean, it happened in Italy. Millions of pieces are landfilled for being wrong. I mean, you know, this... Can the, you tell the, that story? I was working on the Tesco upcycle collection and we were using obsolete stock 
And I was told off the record by one of the factories there that they were burning millions of pieces every week for brand protection. But in Italy, when I worked in Italy, again, same story, I would receive all of the leftovers from the luxury um, fashion industry and I would get boxes and boxes and boxes of perfectly beautiful designer knitwear that had been slashed. So when you say for brand protection, why is that happening? Well, because a brand can't allow an inferior product to reach the market um, and therefore it has to be destroyed. So IP, they don't want to see their prints used by another brand? Absolutely. But the the reality is that it's... Yes, it's IP, it's, you know, in fact, in in this case, the luxury sector is almost worse than the high street because their brands are, you know, logoed, their fabrics are logoed and, and so on and so forth. But the reality is that fact, every single brand does this. Fact, it doesn't just happen at retail level, it happens throughout the fashion supply chain where millions of meters of fabrics can be destroyed for being the wrong shade of pink for having a ladder to the side for having lost elastification coming back to that um, idea of the floor and imperfection and our intolerance absolutely. for it this is the actual absolutely. pointy end of it but also is hello teach people how to design around that imperfection but the reality is that this for this industry being ineffective and inefficient is cheaper than putting money towards finding solutions that eventually will make it more economically viable because surely burning 50 million pounds worth of stock that's not economically right I mean I'm not an economist but you know I would rather employ those 50 million dollars in order to ensure that my supply chain has the solutions to redesign that surplus before it becomes waste. Burberry is working with a London-based company called Elvis and Absolutely, Press to yeah. upcycle some of their leather off-cuts through yes. from their accessories yeah. production, which is a positive side of this story, that there are some solutions. Absolutely. We showcased, actually, we worked with, with Elvis and Cressy and the Burberry Foundation during Fashion Revolution Week for our initiative, Fashion Open Studio, which is, it was one of the reasons that it was, uh, I found it um, interesting that I was the one that the press kind of zoom in, apart from me being the undisputed queen of upcycling. <laughs> That was the also, fact that being copy, <laughs> like you're pretty happy to say what you think. Exactly. Not being circumspect. But I, I told I, I told most people about the fact that, you know, at least Burberry was investing in creative solutions. Because right now we need both. You know, we need technological solutions and creative solutions. I mean, we need to think of innovation not just as technology, but we also need to think of innovation as a way to recuperate knowledge that we already have. You know, this mm. this thing about discarding so much is relatively recent. You know, in factories, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, resources were considered valuable. So therefore you didn't waste them like this. It is the speed of the industry that makes resources, whether they are the luxury or or high street, no longer valuable. So we are looking at an industry that has lost an awful lot of common sense. Ultimately, I feel that we need to go back to common sense. And common sense tells us to safeguard what we've got and improve. Evolution is about safeguarding what we've got that works and 
improve and make things better. Mm. So I do find that, you know, that would be the balance for me. That's what I define sustainability anyway. Let me rewind back to that jumper where you crocheted around the holes. After that, you then began your label from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Talk us through that journey. Bless. So that was the weirdest and most adorable sort of journey of my life in a way. I did something that was completely nonsensical at a time when no one wanted it. <laughs> and yet we sold very well. You know, we were we were successful. You know, we were particularly at the start, I'd say we started in 97, I guess by 1998, 1999, we'd been on Sex and the City and we were selling internationally. I mean, in Hong Kong here, we were in Lane Crawford and, you know, US and so on and so forth. And yes, it was all jumpers with holes and stuff that I found in markets. And I got to get more and more stuff that I found in markets. I upcycled thousands of jumpers but also men's shirtings t-shirts anything secondhand that I could find in bulk and then I started scouring factory floors for their remnants particularly in Italy in the Veneto region so I worked with um, you know knitwear and tweeds and silks beautiful materials nothing new nothing that I ever used was new were you nothing new woman as a child you grew up where near Rome I grew up in between Rome and Venice. Nope, I was quite new. I mean, of course, I inherited my brother's leftovers and, you know, it was a different attitude. No, to be honest with you, this is nothing to do with my childhood. This was my creativity. I mean, for me, the way that my creativity expressed itself, the way that I am, the way that I function is with storytelling. You know, people, you know, everybody sits and looks at people and tells you know, inventing other people's lives. I do that with clothes and objects, you know. I like to think, where were they? What were they? I find poetry in the discarded. And then I'm also very protective. So as soon as I'm told that something isn't liked by someone, then I'm very, very drawn to wanting to like it a lot myself. <laughs> so, you know, all these little bits and pieces of fabric left on the floor. But no, From Summer was a commercially... Not a very successful label. I mean, at times we were, at times we weren't. But it brought me to do some very interesting collaborations. I designed with Tesco, Speedo. I had a best-selling collection with Topshop for four years, which then evolved into the Topshop Reclaim. And it taught me everything I am. You know, it put me in touch with mass consumption and speed. It put me in touch with garment workers not being fairly paid input me really with you know everything that I am and more so now than ever because I'm actually a lot of the people the students or the young designers that I mentor know my brand somehow better than I ever did mm. you know that it, it it left a mark it, it left a mini little mark but it was a mark that freed other people to follow it and if that you found is... that mark on a jumper you would have celebrated it yeah, you exactly. would have put a frame around yeah, it god look love that mark yeah. before fashion revolution there was London fashion week and aesthetic yeah yeah, that was a big thing. That was a big thing. We were asked by the British Fashion Council to create a sustainable area. And I was told under no circumstances that they wanted anything, you know, crunchy. Or I said, we want it like from somewhere, you know, because from somewhere, as I said, was already selling in all the best mm. boutiques and worn by all the various, you know, 90s celebrities and so on and so forth. So we did, you know, and we created a small area. I did this with um, Filippo, my my then partner in brand and in From Somewhere, Filippo Ricci and Anna Orsini. And we created an area that was 
design first, but sustainability very definitely second. Well, I came to it many times and discovered through that showcase designers whose names would now be familiar. The first big designer we had there was um, Christopher Rayburn. So who is on this was, podcast, we will share a link. He was blessed, you know, somebody... It closed in 2014, and, you know, it ran from 2006 to 2014, but it was such a pioneering area. It wasn't just pioneering in terms of the designers we showcased, some of whom are now very, very successful. Um, it was pioneering in its attitude. The most incredible story was once leaving Estetica and one of the designers saying, you know... Any fashion fair that I take part on, nobody wants to tell you who makes their clothes and where do they find their fabric. There is this sense of everybody being so insular. And in Aesthetica, it was the other way around. And some of the best collaborations were born there. So it was almost, it was a joy to see, you know, there would be a group of designers and then the next year... Two of them would have come up together with a collection and, you know... So it's really like a melting pot of completely, ideas. Completely, completely. It was very experimental and the the Aesthetica events actually were what brought Fashion Revolution at the end, you know, Carrie, Fashion Revolution's um, other founder and the woman that actually came up with the Fashion Revolution idea before calling me. Um, she was one of the Aesthetica designers. Our get-togethers were memorable. So Carrie Summers... The other half, although there are many other people involved now many. with Fashion Revolution, Carrie's Panama hat brand Pashakuti is pioneering and we'll share some links in the show notes, but fair trade, extraordinary early adopter stuff. And she's brilliant. Yeah. You met through that. Yeah. And then something happened. Now, listeners of this podcast will be well aware of the story behind Rana Plaza and the factory collapse disaster that happened in April 2013. We'll share some links to previous shows. But after that happened, both you and Carrie, as friends, were independently processing this on your own, wondering, what can we do? Like, something has to change. Then what happened? Then Carrie had a bath. And in the bath, she had fashion revolution, literally. The name, the... the we have to do something. She called me straight away and she emailed me. And we set off. We set off with the vision. And, I mean, for me, what was important was that we weren't going to do an event. You know, we weren't going to do an anniversary event. We're going to do something different. You know, we're going to create something meaningful. But basically, we're going to get angry. You know, we're going to stop being these you know, designers working each in our own little field, doing our own little bit, and we're going to do a very, very big bit that's going to actually affect the people that work in the fashion supply chain. So that was Fashion Revolution. And the great joy of Fashion Revolution was that the team that we put together, although we'd all known each other for years, as I said, in the corridors of Aesthetica to a certain extent, it's where I feel it started, the conversation anyway, but... None of us were campaigners, so it had this spontaneity about it that made it become what it is right now because we broke the rules and made the rules. It was very original. I guess it still is very original. The genius of the concept is its inclusivity. And when yeah. we talk about the success of Fashion Revolution as a global campaign active in more than 90s, probably even more than that now, countries. More than 100 now, yeah. It's all about this inclusivity. It's about bringing it back to every one of us who wears and enjoys wearing clothes. Yeah. It's not about the fashion industry getting together and having a little meeting in a room. This is about no. saying everyone, students, shoppers, fans, fashion people, not fashion people, your mother, your sister, 
anyone yeah all genders everyone all around the world yep that's the key to why it's successful but how on earth do you do it because i mean i don't know (laughs) none of us know none of us know how we did it i mean this is a question that i have been asked a lot and i know that everybody else in my team has been asked a lot and we have no idea um we knew read rise and resist chapter four maybe you'll find out We definitely knew that we wanted... So the first thing that that I came up with with Fashion Revolution was be curious, find out, do something because it seemed to me like the natural progression. It seemed to me that a lot of people were terrified of doing something because it seemed too big. And for me, if you break it down, then it's achievable. So it's also a massive issue. You know, are you interested in animals? Are you interested in people? Are you interested in the environment? What worries you? What concerns you? What keeps you up at night? So each of these, it's about be curious and then find out what fits with you and then do something about what you can. And certainly it's about asking that central question, who made my clothes? Absolutely. So that was, again, a question that we um, we asked quite deliberately and facetiously, we'd say it should be quite easy to ask. Of course, we knew it wasn't. But the truth is that nobody expected such a simple question to be so hard to answer. And I think people got very, very shocked. The fact that you'd think, well, surely the shop where I buy my shirt knows that it's made by that brand and therefore could pick up the phone and say, hey, brand, who made that? And the brand doesn't even know in which country it was made at, let alone who made it or which factory or... When and how did fashion supply chains become so complex? Well, historically, I would say you can bring it back to Nixon and Mao shaking hands in 1971. But truly, when globalization, you know, and free trade came into the equation, the producer countries at the time, so Italy, Germany, US, we were beginning to see that there was a massive problem to this growth of this industry. You know, initially there are stories over the majority of the leather was produced in the northeast and the local rivers were becoming polluted and they had to have entire days in which the, you know, they couldn't use that water. And how convenient to export take the problem. those, exactly, take those techniques and facilities onto somewhere where you don't know really are they going to use the same, you know, the, the European community was instrumental in creating very tough guidelines on how you have to pay your workers, on how you have to treat your waters, on how you have to... So God, it's very cynical when you put it that yes, way, though, it isn't is. it? Because yes, we it regulate is. when we realise the problems when we can, but then yeah, but we then, then enjoy, reap the rewards of that and then flick the problems somewhere else and now we're reaping all the problems of of not having an industry anymore it's it is super cynical i mean and in fact in my career of you know sort of rubbish collector (laughs) of the textile industry i've seen some horrendous stories i mean i've seen textile factories closing during christmas and the workers not having been told and everything moved to china including all of the machines and the factory in italy yep factory being left empty and the workers going back in January and there was no industry there. We don't hear that side of the story very much perhaps because it's considered I mean I know it matters to them but water under the bridge got other things to think about but actually I've never thought of it from that perspective what happened when industry moved out of those places. A I mean, hell of a lot of people Australia, were made redundant. We see it when the bonds factory closes and it means yep. all those jobs are lost Yeah. but actually Well those are skilled jobs that's the other thing that's very difficult is now it's not 
you know, particularly in those days, the Italian fashion industry, textile industry, was operated by very, very highly skilled workers. So it's like they couldn't turn around and do something else overnight. Not only did we lose that, we lost the inheritance. You know, we lost mothers and fathers being able to pass on those skills to the younger generations. And, you know, what they passed them on was a massive disillusionment so that those factories that are still or were still in operation suddenly aren't attracting a younger workforce. How on earth do we guard against the same story rolling out in some of these areas that are now slightly more advanced garment-producing nations when, the, we're, we're when seeing, costs go we're up? Seeing, we're seeing exactly the same thing happen. I mean, you know, we can almost draw a map geographically of the industry moving to cheaper and cheaper and less skilled. So now we're saying, now well, Ethiopia, actually, now China's it's Ethiopia. too expensive, we'll go to Lesotho. Absolutely. So it moved from China and then, you know, from India it went to Bangladesh, Myanmar, Cambodia first and Vietnam first, now Myanmar, now, you know, Ethiopia, Sudan, I think, you know, it's it's just, it just moves. Interestingly, though, China has become a contender for quality and, and also ethics and sustainability in, in certain cases. I've also heard, but I wouldn't be able to substantiate this, that in Africa, although the, the treatment of, of workers is still by no means, you know, they're not being paid uh, anywhere near a, a living, if not even a minimum wage, but apparently the infrastructure is solid and the factories are well-built, constructed and, and, you know, environmentally not as damaging as, as some of the ones we think or we've seen over, over, you know, the world. Because cost is always going to be a big factor in this and because bottom line economics is always going to be the thing and big businesses want to make as much money as they can, how do we as consumers, and this comes back to Fasherev, how do we as consumers in the face of this story of knowing that brands are just going to chase the cheapest needle, what can we do? Oh, there are so many things that we can do. I mean, and this is one of the things that I like about Fashrev, and this is one of the things that spurns me. Fashion is very much individual, and so are we. So what is right for me isn't necessarily going to be right for you. And that goes back to the be curious, find out, do something. There is something you can do. I mean, provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker, you're an operator. And so what's your job? You know, what, what's your operation in this? So mending and buying less. I mean, we don't support boycotting, but plenty of people like it. So boycott if that's what, you know, rocks your doodle. But, you know, overall, there is a solution for everyone. It's about finding it, finding what's right. I'm not going to turn vegan overnight, but I am careful with the meat that I eat and, and so on and so forth. So each has to find their own solution But because it has to live with your life. You know, you can't do something for a day or a week. You know, you need to embrace it for a long time. Otherwise, it's not going to have any effect. I, for instance, I'm asked to do workshops left, right and centre, teach because of me being this, you know, upcycling thing, teach people how to mend this or do that. And absolutely refuse to do it because I feel sometimes when you're teaching people who have no idea how to sew to make something they're making more waste so the way that I teach is that I inspire them to go and look for someone that does it beautifully go and have your jumper mended 
beautifully. Go and have your clothes restyled by a professionist. <laughs> I'm not particularly good at sewing either, apart from crochet. So, you know, it, it's about thinking. Mm. I think that fashion's been insanely stupid for such a long time. And I want to have a thinking fashion for me. You know, it's what I wear. If I am an intelligent person, then I want my fashion to reflect that I am an intelligent and a thinking person. I love how you put the consumer in inverted commas at it like that. Let's say us. I love how you put us into the supply chain. We are. You know, we really are. We are unfortunately not consuming anymore because to consume actually in Latin it means to wear out. And we don't wear out stuff very much. So we're users. We're citizens, you know, and fashion is what we choose to wear. It's our chosen skin. I've said that in the true cost. I keep on saying it. Fashion is our chosen skin. Surely we care about that. Love. And also because I think just bringing it back to that beginning question around goodness it can feel disempowering frightening big overwhelming but when you put yourself into the picture instead of having that remoteness yeah it's not big bad fashion over there no or country over there we don't understand it's actually we're all part of it yeah and thinking about activism that's what it is isn't it saying we can affect change in our whatever way we figure out yeah and we're part of it if we're part of the problem we're part of the solution yeah absolutely also i think that waking up every morning to a massive problem will induce apathy. Mm -hmm. Waking up every morning feeling that you are a part of the solution will provide enthusiasm. So how do you want to wake up in the morning, depressed or active, you know, proactive? I think that, at least for me, the great change came when I had the agency to say, "Uh uh-huh, Yes, yes, I count, I matter. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if I see things in colors and I can't read a spreadsheet. I can do this and I will do this and I do it well. And it's good knowing that you can do something well. And it's good doing something that will have a legacy. And I think all of us right now are in a position to leave a legacy. And to all of us who have children, I would say it's imperative. But to all of us who don't have children, for the ones that do, it's imperative. You know, again, I go back to evolution. I feel that it is about improving, not about regressing. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you